0: In in 2004 we discovered that uh, imaging sensors uh, have unique fingerprints. You can think of an imaging sensor as millions of pixel elements or pixels that register light and they are not made all the same. They, They should be ideally the same but they are not really. They are slightly off in how they react to light. So even if you take a picture of something that's completely uniform like blue sky, it will not be just a constant signal but there will be small random variations and most of them will be truly random like if you repeat that shot again it will be different but there will be a small weak signal that's persistent uh, the same from image to image and that's called the camera sensor fingerprint and so I was lucky to be in the beginning of something big so the right place right time kind of so, and plus it was very exciting uh, because there are many applications of hiding information in images. You can use it for copyright protection, you can use it for integrity um, verification to, to figure out that certain portion of the image has been tampered with. Yes, you can insert um, a mark which is a bit stream let's say 64 bits into an image in a robust way so that if you compress the image using JPEG Mm -hmm. or if you resize the image, if you recolor the image or adjust the brightness contrast, it's still readable those 64 bits and they identify you as the creator or copyright owner. It's a technology that can be easily misused just like cryptography and uh, there are examples of um, uh, basically criminals or terrorists using steganography
1: This week on America Real, we bring you the amazing story of Jessica Friedrich. Jessica is a problem solver. She is a mathematics professor at Binghamton University, and at an early age she came up with a method to speed solve the Rubik's Cube in 20 seconds or less. In addition, jessica he's an amazing photographer she turns that photography into artwork and we'll show you some of those images where she goes on the border of utah and arizona up into the mountains and it looks like she's on mars so if you like this episode please share it with your friends on facebook and twitter subscribe to our instagram and youtube channel and also check out AmericanReel and learn how to master your life story and now without further ado I bring to you, Jessica Friedrich. Welcome to American Real. This is Roger Brooks, and today my very special guest is Jessica Fidrich, a professor at Binghamton University, where you specialize in digital camera forensics and steganography, uh, the art of science of covert communication in digital images. In addition, you are a photographer and an artist creating incredible pieces that are garnering international attention. And in your early years, you developed the CFOP method for speed-solving the Rubik's Cube. Jessica, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here today. And um, Wow, I've done a lot of research, and everything you do is really around problem-solving. When I think about your work uh, at the university, when I think about your, your artistry, and going back to your days of solving the Rubik's Cube, everything's around problem solving. Do I have that right? Yes, you did. <laughs> and so uh, if you can, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit uh, about your upbringing in the Czech Republic. Um, what was it like growing up there um, in in that country it 's a fascinating country i'd love to to know more about it
0: well <clears throat> in many ways it was um, was difficult and in many ways it was also easy because many options were taken away from us. Um, I was interested in astronomy as an as a child. I was ten, and you couldn 't just go to a store and buy a telescope um, so we had to build one with my father, so he we would go to the optician store and buy a lens and then we would go to the carpet store you know, wondering why, because they had those paper tubes that you know, right. we would buy two of them, insert them into each other and then buy a watchman's loop and put together a telescope and I could explore the light polluted skies of my uh, city where I was born in. So it was, you could say it's a bad thing that we couldn't buy a telescope but at the same time it was actually fun uh, to put things together and and this pretty much mirrored the experience um, in my childhood. Um, uh, the not enough access to information and not being able to check out a book from the library, uh, but that's what made it also in some sense exciting.
1: Yeah, so this is fascinating. So your, so your father must have had some level of experience building a, a telescope I would assume. I mean, how, how did he learn to do that? Well, he was he was
0: a man of many professions. Um, he was teaching actually something like electrical engineering at a at a high school, at a high school level, but he was also certified uh, car mechanic, and he was certified um, um, technician of airplanes. I don't know how mm. to translate that, so he could fix just about anything into household, an iron, um, a TV. You know, we had. We had a big box with, um, with electronic and, and parts, and he would just reach in and replace whatever was burnt, and, and that, that was it. You know, we wouldn't call somebody to fix the TV. He would just fix it himself. So he could do a lot of things. He could work on a lathe and create those little circles from, from silicon that he would insert into the, uh, into the tube of the telescope and, and make, it, make it actually look good. Make it work well. So um, he was an inspiration. Yeah.
1: I bet. Um, and do you recall when when you would look at space through this um, telescope that, that you both made? Uh, was the focus okay? I mean, was were you, were you <laughs> able to actually, you know, see the stars? You could see you could see a lot actually. Oh, we uh,
0: discovered that there are sunspots on the sun. And some are black and some are white at the at the, at the rim of the um, of the sun circle, of the sun's disk. And uh, we were so, I was doing it also with a friend of mine from the neighborhood. And we were so excited about it. We thought we discovered something that no one knew about. That there are white spots on the sun instead of black spots. So we would call. We would end up calling a, a solar observatory in Czech Republic. And the whole, I mean, the, uh, the director of the observatory actually um, uh, told us that uh, those are special fields that whose temperature is higher, you know, than the rest of the sun's surface, and this is why they appear to be brighter and lighter and white. So we were kind of down that we, did, we didn't discover anything new, but, but it was exciting. I bet. We couldn't read it in a book, but we discovered it ourselves, and sure. that's what made it really exciting. Yeah. That's great.
1: And how old were you at, at this
0: time? I was like between maybe 12 and 13 okay. maybe years old, something like that, yeah.
1: Very neat. And I understand your father was also a, an artist, and actually there's several generations of, of artists in the... Didrich family, correct?
0: Yes, yes. Uh, my great grandfather was um, a photographer, professional photographer. Uh, he was doing portraits, um, and it was in a small town of Holeshov in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, and my father was an amateur uh, uh, painter. He would, he couldn't make a living this way because his political profile wasn't um, up up to that level basically people who had some sort of a political problem, like disapproving of the, uh, of the 1968, um, uh, the, uh, what happened in 1968 in Czech Republic, in Czechoslovakia I should say, um, would, would have problems later on. So, so he could not be a professional painter, but uh, he would still manage to sell his, his paintings, mostly landscapes and uh, still lifes. Uh, to friends, family, and then as the word spread, you know, to other people. I mean, our whole living room was filled with his paintings. There was not a square inch sometimes on on the walls that was not covered by some sort of an old painting. He did also uh, abstract painting. We had pictures everywhere, behind furniture, (laughs) wherever (laughs) there was some space, there were pictures stacked up everywhere. And some of them I brought uh, with me to America, and we have them in our house now.
1: Nice. So this was a big part of your life, the, the art. Yes. Um, the astronomy. Yes. Um, the exploring. Thing. Yes. And uh, then you, you go to college in Prague, is that right?
0: Yes. I went to college in Prague. Um, I was interested in both art and technical fields, I was interested, I mean astronomy brought me to math, I discovered how powerful it was, what kind of a tool, wonderful tool uh, mathematics is and what you can do with it. So I mean when I was in the fifth grade everybody thought that I would be pursuing fine arts because I was drawing everywhere. Uh, Disney characters, basically. (laughs) (laughs) We had stickers in the bathroom and on the walls, and I would be drawing those. Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and these. Um, But then as I grew older, um, I I just fell in love with the math as well, and I chose to pursue a career in uh, engineering and applied math in Prague.
1: How old were you when you really started to uh, take to math as far as, was there ever an aha moment where you said, wow, I, I want to do this?
0: Actually, yes. Uh, it was in about sixth grade and it was, um, it was um, uh, connected to my interest in astronomy um, when I needed to compute certain things like what kind of stars I can see with the telescope and there was a little formula that involved logarithm. And of course, you know, we didn't have anything like that at school in sixth grade yet. This is more like a high school material, so I had to learn ahead, and this learning ahead math stayed with me, and I pretty much mastered all high school math, including calculus and differential, um, differential uh, calculus in in eighth grade. So the whole high school, I didn't learn anything in math.
1: <laughs> and were you doing that on your own, or was someone? Yeah, helping? on my
0: own. Yeah. Really? Fortunately, there were books that described this, um, so I would basically study from those, from those books. Interesting. Um, yeah.
1: And um, tell us about Prague. Uh, what what kind of city is it like? What, what, what do you remember most? What do you miss?
0: Hmm. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful city, first of all. Um, You have to experience it rather than see the pictures. You have to kind of feel the buzz, uh, hear the noise, um, smell, uh, to really see what it's about, um, to see the old buildings, um, to see the history. Just take a walk through Charles Bridge, that's really nice. Um, I didn't have much time to explore Prague when I was there because um, our dorms were like on a on a hill that was kind of separated from from the center, and so was um um the school where I was going. It was actually in downtown some of the classes were in downtown um so we would enjoy good beer <laughs> actually, there was this famous brewery right across uh the place where we had portion of our classes so so we would always. After doing hard math, we would end up at getting one there. <laughs> That's great.
1: And uh, what do you miss? Uh, what do I miss about Prague? Yeah, and, and or Czech, Czech Republic? Republic in general.
0: Well, um, I miss my family, basically. My mom is there, my sister is there. Um, I don't really miss Czech Republic that much, uh, I have to say. miss the people. Yeah, I miss the people, mm-hmm. yes. Um, I'm more of a person of nature. I like I like nature, and uh, this country, I mean, U.S. is
1: just fantastic place to explore.
0: Yeah. yeah. There's
1: So many things, and we'll we'll definitely talk about that as we as we get into your photography and, and artwork. Um, but um, I'd love to understand when, because I remember when I first got the Rubik's Cube. Um, I'd love to understand how that became an interest of yours, mm-hmm. and then really what I see as an obsession to mm-hmm. not only solve it, but to come up with a method that mm-hmm. you could teach other people to do the same thing.
0: Yeah, that's a big story in my life. It's, it's coming wherever I go, the cube goes with me, <laughs> whatever I do. Um, I, was, I was in high school. Uh, Junior in high school, when I read about the cube, and I mean, at that point, it was already on sale everywhere in the world except for the countries in the socialistic bloc. Funny, but that's how the economy worked, and it plays into what I said. You just couldn't get much stuff, uh-huh. including toilet paper. <laughs> so, um, The first time I saw the cube, it was like a mathematical seminar for for kids from high school, where they would teach us some advanced concepts, and one person from Prague um, brought the cube to that seminar, and of course, you know, it created a big buzz. Everybody wanted to to play with it, and I had it for about fifteen minutes. I could solve just one side, and I knew I was hooked. So, the next phase was how to get a cube, you know. You couldn't just go to a store. It was not awesome. In Japan, yes. In Germany, yes. In US, yes. But not in Hungary, yes, but not in Czech Republic. So, um, I waited for um, um, a summer vacation when my family went to uh, Hungary, and we bought a cube there. And even there, it wasn't easy to buy, actually. Yes, it wasn't easy to buy. We bought it from, from somebody in the street who slipped it to us in a brown bag looking around like this. <laughs> it was still a black market of some sort. So this is how I got my first cube and, um, and I started practicing developing algorithms. I, I had a system before I I, I had the cube. Um, unfortunately, I, I got my hands on a, on a system from a Russian magazine, Quant, okay. and um, I was basically drawing little pictures, how the stickers would move, where the cubes would go, like on a, on a piece of paper, and this is how I would develop my first algorithms without a cube, just drawing pictures of the cube. Um, so I would start with that system and morph it into what eventually became the the CFOP, the Friedrich Method.
1: And, and talk a little bit about that, if you can, because um, mm-hmm. I know uh, there's different stages of that, right? So yes. what would be an example of how, how, do you, how do you start? You start by putting together the first phase, and you put the four
0: edges, basically, like a, you form a cross. And then um, you put the corners with the corresponding uh, cubies from the, from the second layer. You do it by layers, essentially. So then you do two, 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 and two, and th- this will give you two layers, if you can imagine it. And after that, you flip the queue upside down so that you have the unsolved layer on the top. And first, you you flip the edges and the corners at the same time using one algorithm so that uh, the last phase has the color. It's usually yellow, if you have white against yellow. And then in the second stage, you just permute. You... Change their location without twisting the corners or flipping the edges, basically. It's called permutation. So, the first phase of the second layer, of the last layer, is called orientation O, and then permutation P. This is the OP from the CFOP. Okay. CFOP means center, first two layers, uh, orientation and permutation.
1: So, then where does the, the speed come in? If someone gives you a cube right now, mm-hmm. um, what are you looking for? What's the first thing you're... you're Well, the
0: first thing you try to figure out those first four edges. So you try to figure out a sequence that would put those four edges in place. Okay. And you don't have enough time because it's like 15-second inspection, and then you have to start solving. I see. And it's difficult to figure out more because um, as you are putting those four edges Everything changes, and you don't know where the rest of the cubes are. So, so that's the first thing you look for.
1: I see. And so then, what happens? So then, once you once you acquire the cube, now you're you, you mm-hmm. develop this method, and then you started doing uh, entering different uh, contests for this.
0: Well, I would attend some local contests. You know, in the city where I was um, where I lived, uh, I would just win them with a huge margin. So at that point I realized that I might have a shot at the nationals. So I applied for the nationals and I won the nationals. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs>
1: That's incredible. So this is part of your story. I mean this this is a big deal. Yeah. And what was the uh you know what was your record as far as uh what was the fastest time to solve Well I
0: won the nationals in 1982 for uh 2355 so that was a good time in 1982. Sure, sure. And But then, since then, yes,
1: people have actually figured out a way to do it even even quicker, right?
0: Yes, um, there was the there was a buzz, and I went actually to the first world championship. Uh, it was by invitation only. Basically, the uh, the winners of the nationals were invited to Budapest in uh, was it May or June 1982 and this is where we would compete, and the competition was done in a strange way because they gave us their own cubes that were new, mm. unbroken, you know, not broken in, so they were kind of like stiff. grinding yeah. and stiff. Uh, also they had different coloring than that some um, contestants might have been used to. I was lucky it was my coloring, so I was fine, but I, I noticed that some people were incredibly fast with their own cubes, like in the backstage, and then basically burned out during the competition because the cubes were different and also very stiff. So I ended up at the 10th place, I, I didn't do well, my time was 29 seconds, you can tell that it Still, it big. wasn't a very good time, um, even in 1982. And so that was the first world championship, and we had to wait 21 years for the next uh, championship. For the world. For the world championship, yes. That was in 2003 in Toronto.
1: And did you participate?
0: I participated in this one. I ended up second.
1: Really? In the yes, world? in the world. And what was your time then?
0: Uh, it went by average instead of the best okay. time. I don't remember what the average was. But the the person on the first place, his name is Dan Knights. Um, he was my cube student because I tutored him how to do <laughs> the cube better and, and he faster. He visited me, you know, like a that's couple great. Couple times, and I, I would explain, you know. I saw that he was very talented, so I, ex- I was helping him to grow. So he was the first, and I was the second. The wow. teacher was the second, and the student was the first.
1: Were you proud of him? Yes, I was. Yeah, I bet. That's great. Well, it's a it's a wonderful story. I mean, that's uh, uh, an incredible undertaking, and second in the world. That's it's amazing. So, since then, has there mm. been? Have you uh, taken some time off of, of of the cube? I know you're so busy with other things, or do you still? Well, since then, uh, there is f- the the world championship is every two years. Okay.
0: So there was one in 2005, five, seven, and so on. Um, Something happened, and that's the Internet happened. And people started sharing tips and how to improve, how to get better. And when you have this distributed way of developing something, the whole globe is basically developing a system or improving the system. And something strange happened. Um, People got so fast that it's just mind-boggling. The world record today is 4.5. Eight seconds or something around that time four point seven four I'm not possible? exactly sure um, it is possible it's online. you can see it um, the world record hoarder his name is Felix Zemdex, and he's from uh, Australia and he's a super talented kid. He has been on the top for many many years and he holds world records not just in the three by three cube but also in the larger cubes. Wow. Um, it's what changed is the, the style of twisting. The cubes are also different. Um, there are many versions specifically designed for speed cubing that are just um, easier to turn and kind of more forgiving. I see. But it's mostly the skill of the people who have incredibly, um, incredibly gifted hands. They can do ten moves in a second. They move ten faces in a second, basically. Um, they don't have any gaps. In between the faces, no thinking. If you think for a second, done. Um, you're done because yeah. I mean that's one fifth of what it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. right? If, if you do it in five seconds, right. so it's incredible to me. Doing the cube in five seconds or faster than five seconds is just unbelievable. <laughs> Something I would have never, <laughs> never dreamt about. It's it's beyond the wildest
1: dreams. What's happening? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I would think that, you know, you, you'd be proud to be part of that movement from, from the early days, right? Developing this, yes, this yes, method yes, yes, and, and now seeing that it's done in less than five seconds. I mean, it's,
0: it's a miracle. For most people, Correct. solving it in 17 seconds or, or sure. eight seconds is about the same. but it's, it's an immense difference. It's like the difference between you saying bold and, and
1: your best guy in high school. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I would love to move on to talk about your incredibly fascinating field of steganography and um, so what I've read is you know this digital watermarking of forensics um, and from what I gather it's it's basically hiding data within imagery Do yes I have that right yes yes exactly so I know this it's a big it's a big subject to to talk about, but I'd I'd love to dive right into it. Yes. um, Mm -hmm. First off, how how did you get involved with this to begin with? Where did it start?
0: Well, it started after I got my PhD. Um, I went into, uh, I started doing image encryption using chaotic maps. And from encryption, uh, I was working with uh, Air Force Research Lab in upstate New York. And um, at one point I remember uh, the technical, the, the, uh, the chief technical uh, officer there mentioned um, could you somehow not just encrypt the image but make it look like it's some other image. Can can you encrypt the image and, and make it look like some other image so that no one can tell it's encrypted? Because when you encrypt something it becomes obvious that you encrypted it because it's garbled, it doesn't look like anything, you cannot read it, I right? See. So can you encrypt, but at the same time make it look like something else? Mm-hmm. And, and this is when I realized that, well, this is steganography. So this is how it all began, by asking that question by um, someone from the Air Force lab.
1: I see. So then what happens? How, how do you get into what you're doing today? Well, the field was
0: relatively young, in 1995 when I started, 1996. So there were only a handful of papers that I had to to read to uh, to get into the field. And so I was lucky to be in the beginning of something big. So the right place, right time, kind of. Mm -hmm. So And plus it was very exciting uh, because there are many applications of hiding information in images. You can use it for copyright protection. You can use it for integrity um, verification to to figure out a certain portion of the image has been tampered with. You can just check for that watermark inside the image and its integrity to know what happened. Um, What's also exciting is how to tell that something is hidden in in an image. The image is somehow modified, uh, the pixels are somehow changed, the values are slightly off than what they should be, and can you tell and with what certainty that something is hidden in the image. So it's the other side of the fence. You always have to do both, just like you cannot do cryptography and cryptanalysis. Um, One of them, you have to do both at the same time. You have to do steganography and steganalysis. So we started developing techniques, um, publishing. I started getting grants from government, and um, I was working at uh, Binghamton University as a researcher until 2005, when I became I, a professor.
1: Wow. So, um, when you say, for example, the copyright, what can you give us an example of that?
0: Yes, you can insert um, a mark, which is a bit stream, let's say 64 bits, okay. into an image in a robust way, so that if you compress the image using JPEG, or if you resize the image, if you recolor the image, or adjust the brightness, contrast, it's still readable, those 64 bits, and they identify you as the creator or copyright
1: owner. I see, okay. So then, how, you know, what are some examples of people that might be using, uh, you know, embedding messages, images, in here, uh, in in these digital pictures, Mm-hmm. for purposes you know uh, that may you know whether it's um you know a terrorist group i mean are, are are things like this happening today where
0: yes, yes, it's a technology that can be easily misused, just like cryptography and um, there are examples of um, uh, basically criminals or terrorists using steganography um so this is why the work on detecting uh, steganography is extremely important, and this is what I mostly do these days. I see. Yeah.
1: And so, uh, what I'm trying to understand is, is there a software that detects that, there, that an image may have been, you know, um, compromised in some way, mm-hmm. or is it more you're looking at a specific image and then you have to, there's a s- certain technique to decode that?
0: Um, there is there are some techniques on the internet you can you can download that do this. they are not particularly good. We develop the science of this, but we don 't develop the software per se and I can imagine that some other government contractors or government agencies are uh doing what you just said okay to be able to do it in mass uh to be able to do it uh in real life yeah mm. but they probably Use our techniques for this okay. purpose.
1: Incredible. Yeah. And uh, can you tell us what, what what's happening on a day-to-day basis over at the university? What, are you are you trying to advance what you're doing? Uh, continuously. I mean, if as cameras change, as technology mm-hmm. changes, I would assume that you have to keep up with those technologies, right? Because yes. Yes. The person on the other side is trying to figure out a way to manipulate yes. that. This is especially true for digital
0: forensics. In, in 2004, we discovered that uh, imaging sensors uh, have unique fingerprints. You can think of an imaging sensor as millions of pixel elements or pixels that register light, and they are not made all the same. They, they should be ideally the same, but they are not really. They are slightly off in how they react to light. So even if you take a picture of something that's completely uniform, like blue sky, it will not be just a constant signal, but there will be small random variations, and most of them will be truly random. Like if you repeat that shot again, it will be different. But there will be a small, weak signal that's persistent, uh, the same from image to image, mm. and that's called the camera sensor fingerprint. And we discovered that it's going to be uh, reliably detected, and you can use it to prove that a given image came from a specific device, from a specific camera, be it a phone or iPad or um, a digital camera or a video camera. It's called um, sensor fingerprint. You can also check for its integrity within the image to see if any portion has been removed or replaced because the fingerprint will be different in that part. So we developed this technology in between 2004 and 2010. And um, it's being used by uh, law enforcement. Uh, We worked with a a company based in Griffith Industrial Park in Rome, uh, New York. And they developed software based on our techniques uh, that is being used by law enforcement. The main application here is um, to prosecute people who commit crimes by taking pictures. Okay. And those could be movie pirates, or child pornographers, basically.
1: Okay. So wow, so that's that's really incredible work. So so law enforcement is taking your techniques. Yes. That have, has been uh, refined by this entity in in Rome, New York. Uh, implemented yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. They've mm-hmm. implemented that, and mm-hmm. and it's actually in use today.
0: Yes. It's also in a movie. <laughs> really? What is that? It's a movie beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. Um, It came out in 2010 or something around that time. Um, It's by Peter Himes. Yes. And it's starring Michael Douglas. And uh, I recommend that you rent it on Netflix and watch yourself. Great. You will see our technique being used uh, to put to um, uh, to catch Michael Douglas forging uh, evidence and getting him behind bars. That's good. <laughs> That's <good>. We'll, we'll <laughs> definitely have to watch that. They even mention our names. Really? The, yes, they even mentioned three of our names.
1: That's great.
0: My name, the name of my postdoctoral assistant, and my graduate student. And they specifically say, Binghamton University. Yeah, That's fantastic. That now, movie. did you know that was happening
1: at the time? Oh, did yes.
0: Learn- we, we were working with the, uh, with the director. Oh, great. He, so they wanted to make sure it was he accurate. Asked about yeah. Yes, he asked about um, some visuals. Okay. He even sent me the script uh, to look at the script, and I looked at the script, and there were a couple of things that um, just didn't make sense to me from the research point of view. So I, I sat down and uh, rewrote the script, That's great. and I sent it back. And then, then I had a phone call from him. Then when he when he said, "I'm Peter Himes, I'm the." Movie director, I've been doing it for thirty-five years. No one ever rewrote my script. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did. That's great. I did. <laughs> that's great. No, he was he was cool about this. Sure yeah, he, wanted. he I'm asked sure about he what should be what should be changed and how. Okay. He was paying attention, so so that it's con, you know correctly portrayed in the movie and so on.
1: Great. Well, this is fun. I will definitely watch that movie. And yeah, you should. It'll be part uh, part of your story. That's that's yeah. incredible. For people that don't. Know about anything like me? I, I knew nothing about this field that it even existed. Um, you know, and it sounds like, in many ways, you're you're helping law enforcement. Yes. So my question is, what, you know, what's next? What, you know, is is do you see digital photography staying fairly constant for for a while, um, or do you do you think there's new technology going beyond what we, what we see today on our, on our phones and in our cameras? Oh, the technology
0: is changing and it will be very different in 10 years, I'm very sure. What do you see? Uh, well, there's a couple of buzzwords I'm going to say. One of them is uh, computational imaging, computational photography. Okay. Um, another one is different types of um, imaging sensors, larger sensors um then but mostly the computational imaging its computational imaging is when you acquire um you somehow register the light in many different ways to to reconstruct the image later on have you heard about a draw camera
1: mm-hmm.
0: um the one that shoot first focus later yes so that that's kind of an example of of uh, computational imaging. Okay.
1: Yeah. And I don't understand. So how does that work? How, how could it focus later? What, what, what
0: you do? register you register the wavefront itself. You don't register uh, just the focal just the image that's rendered into focal plane. So you can you can kind of think of it as registering uh, many different many different uh, focus uh, many different. Um, images in, in different focal, focal planes and then reconstructing the image from those.
1: To bring them into focus?
0: Yeah, it's a trade-off between spatial resolution of the, of, the, of the image, between the number of megapixels and
1: the ability to do this. How do you see that changing the devices that the common person uses?
0: Uh, This is just one example of of many. Uh, Most cameras today have the HDR mode, Mm -hmm. the high dynamic range imaging, when the camera just takes several pictures with different exposures and then blends them together using sophisticated algorithms to give you a nice looking or better looking image. That's that's almost standard in just about any camera or phone, they have it, right? That's another example of computational photography. You can imagine also there have been designs when you have a camera with several different lenses, and you take at the same time pictures from, first of all, different parallax from different positions, so you can capture three-dimensionality in there. You can have each one of those lenses focus slightly differently. You could even have different focal lengths and then take all this data that you acquired and and use number crunching algorithms to to form the final image. So there are many different ideas that you can can do, what you can do with uh, acquiring just a lot of data Mm -hmm. and then processing it to form the final image.
1: Right. So as you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, a cell phone with several... Lenses, does that mean? Is is that what you're saying? There could be maybe three, four, five lenses on on your cell phone, or more. Yeah,
0: wow. Yep, there are cameras with this design already, they have like eight or nine of them. They are kind of positioned randomly, and different
1: it looks weird because it's so random. Sure, do those advancements in technology change your study, your focus?
0: Um, Of course. Um, like For example, the forensic techniques we develop for hardware, for the sensors, they need to change and need to be developed and they need to be updated as the technology is progressing. I'm always telling people that, uh, unlike human fingerprints, mm-hmm. we don't evolve as species fast. So if you develop a technique for human fingerprinting and getting the fingerprints and matching them, it's going to work in the next 50 or 100 years, right? right. But not with cameras it needs continuous research. Because it's changing so
1: fast? Yes. Incredible. Who would you say is benefiting from the secret communication that's that's embedded in, in these images?
0: Is well, it depends if the secret, you mean when somebody hides a message yeah. in an image?
1: Right, I mean, mm-hmm. can an advertiser do that? So I'm, tr- I'm just trying to think of all the different ways uh, people may utilize that technique.
0: Well, you could resort to something like this if you are, in a, for example, a journalist in a hostile country, and you cannot communicate without, with encryption. Anything encrypted just doesn't pass um, through um, right. their um, censorship, basically. Mm-hmm. So then steganography is way to go, okay. because you take a picture of something that they think the censors know, they think, they, they know,
1: sure. but something else is hidden inside. So, Jessica, can you tell us um, you know, some real-life examples of how all of this hard work that you've put in for all these years has helped people today you know, or over the years? What, what are some examples?
0: Well, I don't know exactly all the details how it's being used and by whom. That's probably classified, but I do know that law enforcement has a program available that they use Um, to to prosecute child pornographers um, by proving that the images that they found on their their computers actually came from their cameras in their possession rather than just downloading from the internet so this is the key element that we can provide also by uh, showing that the same sensor fingerprint resides in two different videos you can make a link about the two entities posting the videos must know each other, so you can get an idea how this could be used for intelligence gathering, for example. Okay. So there is now a whole department in the law of law enforcement that is dedicated to this.
1: And I'm sure I'm sure they're taking down rings of people, if you will, uh, based on all this, right? That oh yes. I have a postdoctoral
0: assistant uh, who has numerously testified in court as an expert witness who did analysis of images that were brought to Binghamton on an encrypted um, CD, and he did the analysis why the the agents, special agents, were still there. So um, we also do this, um, besides law enforcement, we also provide these services. I see.
1: It's fascinating. And it's good work. You know, it's really, really good work. Um, so let's talk about your artistry. Okay. The fun stuff. It's. I had a chance to view some of your, your new images uh, before we started, and I can't put into words that it just doesn't look like planet Earth. It feels like I'm you know, <laughs> looking at something from Mars or somewhere. Um, you must be proud, and I'd like to talk about how this all came to be. Where did you get, um, when did you get interested in in this type of photography that, um, you know, that we see in in your show, Elusive, and and I know you have a new show that'll be coming up soon. Um,
0: Well, I would say that I always liked hiking, and I started taking pictures while hiking, and I ended up hiking to take pictures. Uh, The turning point was probably the trip to Paria Wilderness in 2012 that I took with my student. We had a conference in San Francisco, and I knew about this remote place on the border between Arizona and Utah uh, that I always wanted to visit, but I was kind of a little scared to go there alone, so I asked him to accompany me, and he agreed, and in May 2012 we went there, we rented a Wrangler and we did something wild, and my life has been forever changed. I just wanted to portray the story of that place uh, not just by taking snapshots, but by by taking pictures that would be a single image storyboards that would somehow bring this beauty uh, back to people's homes and,
1: and back to us. And, and talk about this place. Um, it looks very remote. So where, where, where exactly is it? It's on the border, you said, of, of Utah and Arizona. Yes, it's uh, it's between two,
0: but it's be- between two towns. One is Page, Arizona. It also has that famous Antelope Canyon, if you heard about that yes. one, and then Kanab, Utah, which is close to Zion. Um, and it's, it's a region in between. It's a plateau, about 7,000 is, is the highest place, 7,000 feet. It's uh, north of the Grand Canyon and kind of west of Grand, of Grand Canyon. Uh, the Colorado River kind of meanders this way. Well, not really meanders, but turns. Mm-hmm. And the color on the, uh, the Paria Plateau is um, known also as Vermilion Cliffs National Monument. Um, It's uh, also part of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument.
1: Okay. And can anyone go there, or is it a place you need a
0: permit? Some places you need a permit to go to. Uh, They are called Coyote Buttes, Coyote Buttes South and Coyote Buttes North. That's hosting the famous formation, the Wave. Mm. Um, But some places like the White Bucket and many, and the rest basically is free of permit. You can go there freely, without any without any restrictions interesting and some of those permits are really hard to get, like the for the coyote buttes north um those are super hard to get
1: and w- w- what does it take I mean is it just time or, or uh there
0: there's a lottery for each uh for each month mm-hmm. uh, There's ten online permits for uh four months ahead of your hike that you apply online, and they hold the lottery in a computer fashion and they pick ten people out of fifteen (laughs) hundred, it's this many, or you can get ten permits, so there will be total twenty for each day, uh, the day before the hike. So the day before the hike you go to Kanap visiting center and they hold the lottery, the walk-in lottery, and there could be anywhere between, I mean up to two hundred people for ten permits. So your chances are pretty small, but probably larger than the, the online lottery.
1: And have you done that?
0: Yes. I, I won the, the online lottery many times, and I also won the, uh, the walk-in many times. Wow. I've been to the wave 26 times. <laughs> in how many years? In about six years, yeah. Wow.
1: Okay, so now tell us when you get there, uh, you're, up, you're way up in the mountains, um, do you backpack? Are you, are you s- sleeping there? Uh, You're
0: not allowed to, the permit is not for overnight, so you're technically not allowed to spend the night there. I see. But what I think is okay to do is to walk in early in the morning. I mean, that's for sure okay. Or just staying slightly past midnight if you need to shoot at night. So that's what I sometimes do. Um, Usually I go for the sunrise. And I stay until sunset, so it's a super long day. I get up at 3 a.m. in the morning, and usually in Kanab, I drive for an hour to the parking lot. Well, it's just the spot where you can, rent, you know, leave your car basically. Then, um, then you hike for about two hours up a slick rock and over um, sand dunes and sage fields. Uh, the path is not marked. There's very few markers, so. You either need to know the place or you need to carry GPS and follow the directions, basically. And if you walk at night, you need a good flashlight so that you don't fall somewhere. You can hear coyotes, especially in the morning and after after sunset. They sometimes howl very close, and you can hear there's multiple of them, and it always makes me feel uncomfortable, but everybody's telling me, you should not be afraid of the coyotes. They don't do anything bad. (coughs) I'm sure I've been seen by uh, a mountain lion, but I haven't seen one. (laughs) So and there are rattlesnakes, so
1: that's what you deal with. Wow. Uh, And the work itself, so when you go up at night, can you talk about how you're painting with light?
0: Night photography is is something that I dearly love, because as opposed to daylight photography when you preconceive a shot and you know how it's supposed to look because you can see it at night you cannot see anything basically what you can see is basically just outlines or gray different shades of gray but you don't see colors number one and you don't really see what you shoot well but the camera can collect light for fifteen twenty seconds and then something magic happens, you point camera to something that's almost darkness, and after 20 seconds what you see on your little monitor on the camera is I- incredibly colorful, you see just about any color, saturated colors, and and that's always a special moment, it always stops my heart for a while, I start breathing because it's so immensely beautiful. And unexpected sometimes you cannot really preconceive those night shots so well because you cannot see it, you cannot collect light for twenty seconds, and you work with very little light as opposed to daylight shot when all the light is coming from the sun. Uh, At night, you have to work with either residual sunset glow, just a little band of light sometimes in the horizon after sunset. You can paint with light. You can emphasize whatever you want exposed. So this is like dodging and burning in the dark room, what we used to do, but now in real life. So this is pretty exciting because you are forming the image as it is happening, as you are forming it inside a camera rather than in post-production.
1: And what made you... Think of this. Is this is this something well known or was it your own?
0: Night photography concept? is getting actually very popular. Mm-hmm.
1: Now there's quite a bit of information
0: on the on on the internet. But I have to admit that I haven't read that. I just did it in my own way, kind of figuring out things on my own. It's a lot more fun. Just like when I mentioned about building the telescope your own way. It you just learn the technique better if you if you try it yourself. So, because of my background in astronomy and my interest, it was something very natural to do um and optical uh, optical instruments and 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 the sensors are something that I understand from this perspective. So a lot of things come natural to me to do so So it's pretty exciting to work with night photography because you have only a few sources of light that you have to choose wisely, and timing is critical. And it's fairly difficult to do technically correct those shots. Sometimes I have to take multiple shots and average them out to to remove the noise. Before you do denoising, otherwise you would lose on sharpness. Uh, sometimes I I combined the, um, the light from the moon and from the flashlight, uh, but in a way that you can't tell. I've I've heard photographers telling me that. Um, my Colors of Darkness photograph is is a composite because you can never get that light simply. Right. It's out of question. Yet it was all formed within 15 seconds inside the camera. It's not a composite. So when somebody says that to me, uh, it's, it's an offense and praise at the same time.
1: Right. I could see that. So are, after you take that shot, are you able to view it there?
0: Yes, you can. You can see it in your
1: viewfinder. Yes. Okay. Now so you, you can, now see, you can see a little bit of the colors. And you
0: can see it on the LCD monitor. Mm-hmm. In your viewfinder, you see nothing. Okay. But you can see it on the on LCD the monitor. monitor. Okay. Uh, this past July, I, I took a shot that just knocked my breath breath out. It was incredible. You just because you don't see colors, you only can you only have a hunch that there is something there, there, is some sort of light, and you may not even realize initially what kind of light it is but you just see that there is some light in the clouds and I took the shot and there is this orange red vortex in the sky because it was a thunderstorm lit from below by the city of page by those uh, sodium vapor lights which gives it the orange uh, color and then the sky Then you you would see the rest of the sky but many many stars there that that was kind of purplish Then I captured during the exposure also lightning above the Hopi mountain, about the Navajo mountain in the background, and then I light-painted in front. So you had four sources of light, and the picture looks completely surreal. You look at it and you say, you would swear that this is just a composite, added colors and all of it, yet it's a single shot with four unique sources of light, just unique circumstances. But you cannot see in any of that. All you see is just an outline, basically, and sometimes the flashes of distant lightning. That, that's all you see. So you point it to the darkness, and you just say, let's see what's there, because you cannot see. So it's like your instrument. It's like a telescope or microscope. You don't see it with your eyes, but you know something is there. So you point it there, and you wait for a miracle to happen. Did you name that image? I have two names for that image.
1: What
0: are they? Uh, one is end of the world, because it looks apocalyptic. But the second one is time to hatch, because that stone creature in the foreground, it looks like it's just forming in front of your eyes, when the circumstances are right, and the circumstances are in the sky. So, so it could be one, or maybe it's going to be something else. I, I love naming my images. coming up with stories for them.
1: Yeah, and you talk about that, um, you say that these images start to tell stories, right? Uh, Their own stories. Can you expand on that?
0: Well, sometimes I start with a story. Sometimes I want to convey something. For example, there are beautiful lace rocks in, in those places. Lace rock is it's like a three-dimensional honeycomb from thin rocks that looks impossible like how this could have been created. I wanted to tell the story of those rocks. They almost look like skeletons of rocks if if they lived if they if they were alive then this would be their skeleton. So I thought about using the sun to give to bring them back to life. I call that image resurrection and it's the rising sun bursting through the opening in those interesting in one of those interesting big lace rocks that is seemingly granting it life again after it had died so sometimes I form the story in my head to help me with the composition and and how to structure the shot and sometimes the story comes afterwards you you take it because because of the constraints of the light, because of the constraints of the composition and because you feel it but you don't, you don't know exactly you have, you have this inkling, you have a strong feeling that something wonderful is there and then you come up with the story afterwards but I do want each of my shots to to convey a story, to be, to be a, a storyline basically and it's pretty challenging because it's not something you can draw yourself and, and you don't have four frames to convey the story. You have just a single frame to convey the story.
1: That's incredible. Uh, Could we talk about Elusive, your your first uh, series? Where did the name come from? And I'd um, love to talk about some of the highlights of, of that show.
0: Well, then, um, the name kind of comes f- from two directions. I will start with the last obvious one, and that is uh, the life of those rocks itself is kind of elusive in it in its own because they have a short lifespan. Not necessarily um they are not necessarily permanent. They they break, they are better down. Sometimes people take them down. Even that happens, sadly. And we don't realize that because we think a rock is there forever, but but they are kind of, they have elusive lives. But the second meaning of elusive is uh, I'm trying to capture a a moment that is very elusive. I want the viewer to be, to have a feeling that they are witnessing something special. When you look at a picture, uh, I want you to feel that this is an exceptional circumstance that is captured in the photograph, not something that you will just be able to visit the location and take the picture yourself something that you have to do fifty times before you get it right, Uh, the feeling of uniqueness. Uh, So that can be sometimes very elusive. I visited some locations so many times before I got the shot.
1: And what are some of your favorite images from from that series? From Elusive? Yeah.
0: I like the night shots a lot. (coughs) They are always fun to do. I like the Colors of Darkness, which portrays a famous location in Arizona called the Wave in Coyote Buttes North under the pyramid. Sure. That was planned for a year, including getting the hard-to-get permit, which was the, the biggest problem. <coughs> then you have the permit for one day. There are no rain checks. You cannot go some other day or the day before. You have to go on that day.
1: So if the weather is not cooperating. If the weather is
0: not cooperating, you don't have the shot. Wow. And I was hoping for uh, water in the Wave so that I have some sort of interesting foreground. And also because of technical demands, because I would be losing my depth of field shooting really wide to get the sky, so I needed something that wouldn't, that would take the out-of-focus part of the image. So, So a lot of thought goes into that. Also, the moon was in a perfect position that would lit one of the walls, that I would, that would be super hard to, to light paint, and I light painted the rest. So there was so much thought coming into that shot, so much planning, basically a year ahead to get that shot, and I came back with exactly what I wanted to, and so that was my first night shot that I was really proud of, The Colors of Darkness. So that's probably the one that um, I'm the most proud of. but. Um, picking a favorite child is like picking a favorite child. Sure. Um, so I, I, don't do <laughs> I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I like them all. Some have nice stories. Some have nice memories. I have memories with pictures to remind me of the moment.
1: Can you walk us through one?
0: I was I was there uh, in, sep- in the beginning of September this year, and I was shooting... Um, white pocket by a monolith, and uh, it was about an hour before sunset. I set up my tripod to to do just about the only meaningful composition I could come up with that I actually liked a lot and something that I haven't seen anywhere, it was kind of a unique composition, unique concept. And I was waiting for the weather to to change and happen, basically. I, I had a sense that something special is going to happen, and it did. And I received a phone call, actually there is cell phone signal in this part of the wilderness, okay. one of the few, that um, our daughter's college is being evacuated because of the hurricane and we need to get her um, a ticket um, back to Binghamton. So I started going on kayak on my cell phone while I was taking the pictures. Trying to find a one-way ticket for eight hundred dollars from Sarasota to Binghamton to to Philadelphia, and take care of this problem right there. And I was doing this this emergency solve problem solving as I was taking the shot. I basically set my camera to do five shots bracketing, and um, so that I covered the dynamic range. I don't have to uh, check what what I took picture of and i would take the I would take the shot as the light was changing in the past forty five minutes, and great shot great two shots came out of that evening, and we were able to to get the, the ticket from from Sarasota and make sure that she would be safe so so that will be always a memory sure. in my in my mind. And sometimes I play music to get into the mood to. To get ideas, uh, I need to be, like for example, when I'm sleepy, I don't take good pictures because I don't have the mental energy. It's, it's all about getting the ideas, and so I don't take typically the greatest pictures in the morning, even though I have some of the best shots I do have with, with sunrise, but I like sunsets a lot more, but sometimes just they don't work, so you have to go for sunrise. So music sometimes. Sometimes I hear music with, with a shot. The music I was playing, that that was kind of getting me in the mood to,
1: to execute it, yeah. Neat. Very neat. Um, your new series is called Awakening. Yes. And, um, yeah, I just, I again, when I look at those images, it's just, I've never seen anything like it in my life. I mean, do you feel the same after you're... You, you come up with it. It's just
0: yes, that's the idea. <laughs> <Yes>.
1: <laughs> we need the world to see these images. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what what about this new series? Because um, you know the old series was incredible. How could you take you know How could you top that? And I think you have. That, that's always in the back of my mind. You know. Um, can,
0: can I do? Can I do better than that? And I never know unless you, unless I go and spend my time. And sometimes you have to get lucky. You know, there's a lot of randomness in this process. And sometimes you do get lucky, and sometimes you don't get lucky at all. I mean, as a rule of thumb, most of the time I come back without a shot.
1: I know. I think you mentioned one of them was called rock and roll. Is that right? Yeah. Can you describe that? But it was a magical.
0: <coughs> <coughs> it was a magical evening, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> when I came to White Parket, um, the storm was just departing, <coughs> and there was there was a beautiful rainbow uh, in the east. So I immediately, when you see a rainbow, you start running through your, through your mind: what's facing this direction? What can I put into the foreground that would work? So, so I came up with something that made a lot of sense and then the light started changing uh... the weather was changing, the sun was setting and I could shoot continuously for about forty-five minutes with, with some of the best light I've ever seen in my entire life and from that night itself I got many fantastic shots and one of them is rock and roll that you mentioned when the sky was pretty much covered with Interesting, dramatic, smooth clouds with beautiful gradients and, and little little like torn portions of dark, dark clouds mixed with these. And it just for, for a brief moment, you just got um, a breath of that sun, of that sunset, rich red light that just carries the rocks <coughs> and gave beautiful color, yellow color, to those low-lying uh, clouds. And this is, <coughs> this is when I press the shadow button. And it's one of those that I call perfect shots that you don't have to do much to. You, you basically develop them basically in, in, in Lightroom. You do small adjustments and that's it. You don't have to do any bracketing. You don't have to do anything. It's perfectly fitting within the dynamic range of the camera. No HDR, no magic, just that. And I love those images the most because they are just, they're just right.
1: So what are some of the other names from that, from that time period where you you took those shots?
0: don't have everything, uh, named yet, but, uh, I have, uh, Extraterrestrial, um, there is Awakening, as you already know, there is Rock and Roll,
1: um, wasn't there one like crash landing or something? Oh, there's a
0: crash landing, yes. Yeah. That's not from that night. That's okay. from a different day. Yeah, there's crash landing with a beautiful <coughs> lace rock, with the coyote builds peaks in the background, yeah. lit by the rising sun. You have to go for sunrise if you want to shoot those lace rocks. <laughs> then there's no, no other way to do that. Um, so I don't have it all in my head with, sure, with the names, sure. yeah.
1: I can't wait for this next show to come out. It's uh it's going to be incredible. Uh what is next for you? Do you have your next trip planned? Um, <coughs> yes,
0: I have a conference in San Francisco uh, at the end of January, so I'll probably spend about 3 days in uh in, uh, in Utah and Arizona in the beginning of February. Okay. <coughs> February is a funny month. It can It can be really interesting. The last time I was there, uh, the region just got a foot of snow, and that foot of snow just melted. And that's a lot worse than if you just get a lot of rain, because rain has a tendency to, to wash off into those washes and go away. But imagine foot of snow that just melts into the ground. It doesn't really flow away. So what happens is that all the access roads were so muddy, that I've never seen so much mud in my entire life. The car I had, you couldn't see the color. Wow. I had to clean the headlights to have some light on the way back because it, there, was, there was no light coming out of the headlights. It was encrusted with mud. Interesting. <laughs> Getting there is half the fun. Yeah, it sounds like
1: <laughs> it. That's right. Uh, and, and what's your mission with this? What are you trying to do?
0: Well, as I said, I try to tell stories. <coughs> I want to keep telling the stories because there are so many untold stories to be told.
1: Well, Jessica, this has been incredible. I, um, I'm just fascinated with all of your work. It, it's, it's, it's incredible. We, you know, I, I started by saying that um, it sounds like you're a problem solver and um are there any other problems that you want to solve? <laughs> are you thinking about anything new um, new in in what in by well, uh, photography yeah uh, or or even outside you know just is there anything else mm-hmm. t- to come that 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 uh that you want to
0: solve there's this emerging um Emerging direction um, in in science now it's called deep learning or artificial neural networks with deep structure that are revolutionizing the way we do signal processing. It's also revolutionizing the way we do stack analysis. It's a new tool. It's very exciting. It's extremely smart. It's a black box. We don't really know how this really works but we know that it works the best. My student recently came up with a neural network design that just smashed all the, all the records, basically, in stack analysis. I'm, I'm very proud, and he should be proud of his work that he did. So I'm, I'm very excited about this new direction at work and see where this, where this actually leads. In some way, it's similar to the development with the cube, Like in 1982, if somebody told me it's possible to solve the cube in five seconds, I would not believe. And if somebody told me three years ago that we can actually steganalize as accurately as we do now, I would not believe them either. And it's fascinating to see how even your wildest dreams are just not wild enough.
1: That we can keep going further and further, right?
0: Yeah. And it's
1: fascinating. Incredible. Well, before we let you go... I have one last question, and that is what would you like, what do you want your legacy to be? Because <laughs> you're leaving a lot of good things behind.
0: Yeah, I think history will take its own path, independent of what we want. It has always been this way, for the better and for the worse. So I will leave it to the history, how I will be remembered. It could be the cube. I don't know. I'm hoping that there will be more than the cube.
1: I think it will be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much. This has been wonderful and um, we will continue to follow your work. We will post it. And how can people reach you? Um, What what is your website? Um, It's very simple. It's www.chessicafrederick.com.
0: No spaces, all lowercase. So if you know how to spell the name, you just put jessicafedric.com and you will see my photography website and you can send an email from there. Another possibility is to just Google my name and the first link is my professional website with my email. So the best way is by email.
1: Great. And we'll be sure to post the links as well and yeah. a lot of your, your artwork too. Sure. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Raja.